Hi, everybody. So sorry not to be with you in person. My family, well, not my family, my wife and I are leaving for Israel uh, tomorrow. We're going to be gone for two weeks. I have so much prep to do. We're taking 32 EV Freers. We're taking 34 Biolans led by uh, Barry Corey, president of Biola and a dear friend. And we're going to have two weeks in Israel. It is going to be amazing. We're leaving our children, which is going to be hard. But for the sake of amazing, we're going to do it. Uh, But I wanted to uh, at least be with you in spirit today because I'm going to miss the next couple of weeks. If you are here and you are new to our community, you came last week at Easter, I want to say an extra special welcome to you. And I want to say thank you to all of the people that made Easter happen. I mean, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of musicians and singers and parking people and uh, 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 ushers and greeters and I mean, and, and children's workers. It was just amazing. So thank you for all of the work that you did to make that happen. We're going to continue on in the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 11. We're going to move on past the Lord's Prayer, but we're not going to start in Luke 11. We're actually going to start in Luke 4. And I want to remind you of a few things that we've already seen. And and if you remember a couple of years ago, we've talked about. Go to Luke chapter 4. And there's a motif presented in the book of Luke that I want to draw your attention to. An extra credit for me for using the word motif. Now, I could not spell motif, but I like it. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, after Jesus was baptized, a very famous incident takes place. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And the word here means like the slanderer, the accuser, uh, the adversary. That, and, and this is the first time in Luke we read about the existence or the person of this being called the devil. But as it turns out, as Luke records the Jesus story, This uh, adversary makes all kinds of appearances in all kinds of ways. Go to Luke chapter 4, verse 33. A lot of these stories uh, should be familiar to you. If you're new to the Bible, we'll put everything up on the screens. But I want to kind of zip through the front part of Luke before we land in our text so that you can see how often this is referenced. This battle between Jesus and this enemy, this Satan, this accuser, this devil. Luke chapter 4, verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Now this This kind of incident takes place all over the book of Luke. Jump over to verse uh, 40, the same chapter. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all with various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! Which I, I, I just love. And one of the things we always talk about when we talk about this is that demons have great theology in the New Testament. No one is really clear about who Jesus is, but the demons know always from the very beginning, you're the son of God. We know who you are. But, but I want you to notice how often the ministry of Jesus is recorded in kind of warfare terms. Flip over to chapter six, verse uh, uh, 17. Jesus went down 
with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples was there, a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by what? Impure spirits were cured. So part of the healing ministry of Jesus was this coming against the forces of darkness. Go over to chapter 7, verse 21. And another, I know this will be surprising, another instance. I just want to show you how often this is taking place. Verse 21, chapter 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Flip over to chapter 8. I know we're, we're, we're chugging a lot, but it's saying the same thing over and over and over. Luke chapter 8, verse 27. Chapter 8, verse 27. When Jesus stepped uh, ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. And there's this huge sort of story that takes place about how Jesus cures this man, and this man wants to become a follower of his. Over and over and over in Luke, you see the same thing happen. As Jesus manifests, proclaims, and embodies the kingdom of God, he's coming into conflict with another kingdom. There's an enemy that was already here that Jesus and his kingdom are displacing. Flip over uh, a couple more. Chapter 9, verse 37. Chapter 9, verse 37. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. The man in the crowd said, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus sends out 12 of his followers and he gives them authority to cast out demons. He sends out 70 of his followers and he gives them authority to cast out demons and they come back. Verse 17, Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then Jesus replies, and this is full of Old Testament imagery we do not have time to explore. He says, I saw Satan Fall like lightning from heaven. I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Do not rejoice, however, that demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are found in the book of life. Now what Jesus is is saying here is he uses a word, Satan. And it's used in the original language not necessarily as a name, but as a descriptor, almost as a title And it's used, ha-satan, the accuser, the slanderer. And and in the Old Testament, we meet this, this creature that is constantly accusing the followers of the one true God before God himself. And, and so, Jesus, we read about this devil, we read about demons, we read about this being called the Satan, the Satan, this accuser, this adversary. So, Jesus, this is such a huge part of the ministry of Jesus. It's not surprising that this aspect of his ministry draws negative attention. Flip over to chapter 11. This is our text for today. We spent some time before Easter going through 
prayer uh, as embodied in the Lord's Prayer. And now verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. By now, this is just kind of normal Jesus stuff. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Now that detail is very important. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. Now, the reason the crowd was amazed, there were other exorcists uh, in Jewish history at the time, but that a mute demon was thought by some of the sages of the day to only be a demon that could be cast out by the Messiah. Because demons, they thought the way you had to cast out a demon was to find out its name and use its name against it in casting it out. And so here's Jesus coming across a demon that was mute, a man that was mute, and there's no name. And yet Jesus, without any trouble at all, cast this demon out. So the crowd was amazed. And because of the significance of the miracle, notice what happens. But some of them said... By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. In other words, Jesus is so successful at exercising demons, you have two options. You either have to say there's something unique and messianic about him, or he's actually in league with the powers that he is supposedly expelling. So some of them, because their hearts were so hardened against Jesus, say, well, obviously it's the second one. He couldn't actually be who he's saying he is. Others, verse 16, tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now Jesus, Jesus is so brilliant. He knew their thoughts and he said to them, he gives a couple of different arguments about the absurdity of claiming that he is working with the prince of demons to cast out demons. He says, first, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his what? His kingdom stand. Now we'll come back to this word kingdom in just a second. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And and this was a name given to uh, an old ancient sort of Canaanite deity that had evolved over the course of years to be seen as the prince of demons. Now... So Jesus says, first of all, that doesn't make any sense that I would be in league with the darkness casting out other darkness. That just defeats itself. But secondly, he says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do do your followers drive it out? In other words, I could make that same argument against you. So then, they will be your judge. But if I drive out demons, and here's a magnificent phrase, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is what he's saying. Listen, I know you guys are thinking it's only by the power of the enemy that I'm driving out the enemy, but think about how absurd that is. First of all, the enemy would never drive the enemy out because it would demonstrate a civil war in its own kingdom, and that we know isn't happening. And number two, if you accuse me of being in league with the enemy, I could make that same accusation against you. But instead, what is happening is you are seeing the finger of God. Now, that phrase is used once in the Old Testament through Moses and Aaron against the false magicians of Pharaoh. This is an Exodus term. 
This is, you're seeing an Exodus kind of thing happen here. Instead of an earthly pharaoh and earthly captivity, you have a spiritual pharaoh, the Satan, holding people in spiritual captivity. And what you're seeing through Jesus is this finger of God. The same finger that worked through Moses is now at work in and through Jesus too. And then he gives this metaphor, this picture of his ministry. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Oh my goodness, Jesus here is painting a picture for all of those texts we looked at throughout the early book of the part of Luke, uh, part of Luke. that every time, every little bit in the book of Luke is what I'm trying to say, that points to this ongoing battle between the kingdom of God and now we just read about the Satan has a kingdom too, right? How can his kingdom stand if it's divided against itself? He refers to it as a kingdom. He takes that conflict And he kind of reframes it with a different picture. He says, listen, suppose you have a house with lots of possessions. Of course you're going to have a guard. And you would think your possessions are safe unless someone stronger comes and takes away the guard, then plunders your possessions, right? We all know how that works. So in Jesus' image, the earth is the house that is God's. Human beings were meant to be the landlords, the property managers who managed and and blessed and ruled and subdued the property on behalf of the owner. But an enemy has come in and now has, has the human beings have wittingly and unwittingly collaborated with the enemy. They're now in captivity themselves. They're part of the property that is now held captive guarded by this strong man, this Satan. And Jesus says, if you want to know what's happening when I'm casting out demons, I'm just taking care of the guard so I can plunder his house. Everyone who's being healed, everyone who's being set free, everyone who's coming to faith in me, everyone who's following me, that's the plunder of the kingdom of God. Every step the kingdom of God takes, the kingdom of darkness takes a step backward. So Jesus sees our world as being held in captivity, guarded by this strong man, this being that's still created. He's not God's equal, but he is God's opposite. And that Jesus comes plundering his kingdom by taking care of the strong man. And so we read about things called demons, which are these kind of fallen angels in the biblical story that are in league with this Satan, opposing the work of God in the world. And so Jesus comes very simply. First John says it this way, the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the devil's work. And what was the, the, the devil's work? To hold people in bondage. To rob them of their rightful place as landlords. To be used by God to represent and advance his sovereignty on the earth. Now he's plundering. What you're seeing in his ministry is he's binding this guard and he's plundering. And the thing that you see in Jesus' ministry that's even more astounding is that he then invites us to be plunderers as well. Those he sets free, he commissions now to join him in the battle. And so in the scriptures... 
there's a, a huge point. We've made it before. Part of the battle that you and I face is simply the recognition that we're in one. That, that for a lot of us, there are some really weird folks out there that see spiritual warfare behind every failed exam and cold virus. And, and okay, but some of us take it too seriously, but many more of us just don't take it seriously enough. And so the scripture never says to be afraid of this, but it says to be aware of it. That you actually have an adversary, and that adversary is bent on stealing, killing, and destroying, according to Jesus. Once you become set free in this way, God invites you to join now in the battle. Go, if you would, to the book of Colossians. In Colossians, Paul says something very, very interesting about what salvation turns out to be. Colossians chapter 1, notice this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. So in Jesus, you have Jesus talking about this plundering that he's doing of the enemy's kingdom. And he frames it as a battle between two opposite but unequal kingdoms. Right? Satan is not the equal of God, but certainly the opposite in some ways. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Notice how Paul here speaks of Jesus' work. For he... Jesus has, or for he, God, excuse me, has rescued us from the dominion or kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So one of the ways to understand salvation, of course, is that we're forgiven or or that we're adopted into God's family. But another way of understanding salvation is that there are two kingdoms on the earth. We naturally are born into the bad one. All of us come into the world in darkness. No one has to teach us to be selfish or narcissistic or self-absorbed or prideful or lustful. We can find our way in that just all by ourselves. The earth is still good. Human beings are still made in God's image, but it's tainted, it's tarnished, it's fallen in biblical language. It's held in captivity and in this kingdom of darkness. We're naturally born into the kingdom of darkness. There are two kingdoms. We're born into the bad one. That is why Jesus will go around saying, hey, you must be born a second time. A a spiritual birth into this new one. And so Paul says, your salvation is actually from one kingdom, out of one kingdom, into another kingdom. And using the image of Jesus, now as people who live in that new kingdom... We're invited in on the battle. There's still a battle. It's not that once you're delivered from the old one and you're brought into the new one, the battle's over. In fact, the battle actually intensifies, as we talked about last week, that that sometimes new creation displays itself in, hey, there was a battle over this issue when there wasn't one before. And, And when we tell people, that following Jesus just makes your life better, we actually set them up for disappointment and failure. Because you really don't become a combatant until you step into the good kingdom. And now there's a target. So, there are two kingdoms. We're born naturally into the dark one. Salvation is the, the, the removal of us from the dark one into the light one. Jesus calls this plundering, that we're, we now represent plunder, but now we're invited to actually share in the battle. We're invited to share in the plundering. So 
the New Testament is full of warnings, admonitions, exhortations to be aware of the battle and your part in it. So I want to give a couple examples of this. Go to 1 John. In the biblical mindset, spiritual warfare isn't only, it's not only those moments where a, a, a demon is like spinning someone's head around and you're trying to cast it out. I mean, that's kind of what we think of. You know, the, and Hollywood's fascinated by this stuff, right? I mean, demonic, the demonic and the occult, I mean, those hold a huge fascination for our culture. And there's something in there, I think, very primal that realizes, yeah, there's something, there's something else going on here. But spiritual warfare in the Bible isn't always that dramatic or spectacular. In fact, it's very mundane, and it's rooted in fundamentally in how you live. You're either feeding one kingdom or the other by how you live. And you, as a child of this new kingdom, a born-again child of this new kingdom, you're actually, you actually have the capacity to do both. And so John will write in 1 John, John will write in 1 John, verse 5, 1 John 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. Now, John, one of John's favorite pictures is not kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan, but light and darkness. He's speaking about the same things, though. God is light. In him there is no darkness. If we claim, remember he's writing to churches here, Christians, if we claim to have fellowship with him, God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, living in the light is not about what you say, it's about how you walk. And walk is always a picture of life. It's never, living in the light, it doesn't matter if you claim to be in the light, if you walk in darkness, you're still in the kingdom of darkness. This is what John is saying, and he gives a very, very practical example in chapter 2, Verse 9, so so this, I want you to see this kind of thing as spiritual warfare. Most of us walk around thinking we're on vacation through human life. There's a difference between whether or not you think you're at Disneyland or you think your life is more like Saving Private Ryan and you're invading Dede. You live differently if the goal of your life is comfort, security, and convenience or if the goal of your life is to engage well, to pour out your life, on behalf of those who are still in darkness. So this is absolutely fundamental. This isn't, for many of us, it's a piece of theology. It's not a piece of reality. And the goal is for it to be a piece of reality and not just in those crazy moments when someone's drooling in need of spiritual deliverance, but in actually how you live. So John says very, very simply, anyone who claims, verse 9, anyone who claims of chapter 2, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister in Christ is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. In other words, you, if your life is dominated by hatred and anger and unforgiveness, to say unequivocally, I am the child of light, John says, well, I'm not so sure about that. How you love brothers or sisters in Christ is a matter of spiritual warfare. It's a matter of light and darkness. 
Now, for us, we think it's kind of innocuous, like, well, did you hear what so-and-so did? And, and what about this and how crazy this is? What are you feeding? What are we feeding when we're talking about each other that way? What are we feeding when we're devouring each other over these things? We're certainly not feeding light. Flip over, uh, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. Paul has this very interesting pastoral issue he's dealing with. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice, and I need to set this up so that you appreciate the full impact of what Paul's doing. So Paul's a missionary. He's writing to a church he planted in Corinth. And Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, to be a Corinthian was to be a glutton and a, 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 a drunkard and to be a, a promiscuous person. I mean, they, they, they had slang for this. To be a Corinthian was to be someone who was just totally licentious. Points for licentious. Couldn't spell it. Love it. Not it, but the word. Just to be clear. Now, so, to, so he's writing to a church And he's called them into this new kingdom, but he's just heard that there is a man in that church who is sleeping with his father's wife. Not his mother, but his father's wife. This is in 1 Corinthians, the letter. And Paul says, hey guys, why are you proud of this? This is, pagans don't even put up with this stuff. And he says, listen, for the sake of the purity of your community, because this man is an habitual public sin, You have to cast him out of the community in the hope that he will come to repentance. Now they end up doing this. And in 2 Corinthians, we we read, they've done it so well, this person, we think Paul's talking about the same person, wants to come and be restored to the community. It's so full of repentance, they want to be restored. But some of the Corinthians are saying, no way. Not anymore. So Paul has this interesting thing he has to say here. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 8. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient and everything. It's, n- it's never an easy thing to ask someone to not participate in the community. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, i forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that what? Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now think about this. Paul makes this an issue of spiritual warfare, how you restore someone back to the community. These are people that don't want to forgive, some of them. At first they were prideful. Paul writes and says, what are you guys thinking? Expel this person from the community in the hope they'll come to repentance. And evidently the person did. But they don't want to forgive and restore. And Paul says, if you don't forgive and restore, Satan has won. Darkness has advanced. So I'm writing to tell you this for your sake so that Satan would not win. Now think about that. That's just something we think, ah, it's just, you know, sometimes we disagree with each other. Christians are great at dividing and fighting and and labeling and classifying. We just think, well, that's just kind of what we do. Could it be, Paul at least opens the possibility up, could it be that that's actually 
feeding darkness. That the, the, the way we treat each other. So, so think about it. So if person A is upset with person B, biblically, person A should go to talk to person B. I mean, it couldn't be clearer that this is what you're supposed to do. But in fact, what we love to do is instead of going to talk to person B, we want to go talk about the person C, D, E, F, and G about how crazy B is. What are we doing there? See, that is an issue of warfare. That's not just a sanctified way of gossiping. That, that's actually feeding darkness. Brothers and sisters, anytime there's unforgiveness, anytime discipline is an exercise, anytime restoration isn't offered, that's actually kingdom of darkness stuff. How the body relates is spiritual warfare. You're either feeding darkness or you're feeding light. And and these aren't really like ambiguous passages, right? I mean, these are really, really clear. Go if you would to Ephesians, one last one. I just want you to see that the spiritual war we're in is incredibly practical. Why are we against pornography? Is it just because we're Puritans and we're afraid of sexuality? No! God is the author of sexuality. But the reason we're against pornography is because of what it does to the person, what it does to the viewer, what it does to the people that facilitate it. That is darkness. That's welcoming darkness. That's saying yes to darkness. That's fueling darkness. Why do we say no to racism? Is it just because we're nice moral people trying to impress our nice big God? No. It's because it's an issue of spiritual warfare. Why do we care about anger? Well, notice what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4. This one, I mean, think about how practical this is. In your anger, verse 26, in your anger, so evidently God knows this well, we will be angry. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a what? A foothold. Now the word in Greek means a place to stay. A place of residence. So let's talk about anger. Anger isn't one of the cool sins. You know, I mean, everyone kind of struggles with, yeah, pride and, yep, lust. But anger, that one's a little ugly. And evidently what, what Paul is saying is, listen, you can't let it go unresolved. My wife and I don't, like... Once it's 6 p.m. and the sun goes down, I mean, we, we're not trying to get all of our anger resolved right before sundown or we're in sin. No, no, I mean, it's, this isn't. But it's saying that if you let it sit, you've given darkness room in you. In you. Do not give the enemy a foothold. Why do we care about the violence that's portrayed in movies? Is it because we're just nice, quaint, pacifistic folk? Or do we believe that our culture loves to feast on the culture and the kingdom of darkness and death? Why do we love watching viral videos of fights? Why do we love watching brawls at sporting events? I said brawl. I just wanted to clarify. There was an L. Why do we love MMA fighting? And just, I mean, why is, what, what is so primal about that? What are we feeding in those sorts of things? 
See, what Jesus is inviting us into is the fact that you and I, if we're followers of Christ, are now part of the new kingdom. Now we're front and center in the battle. Part of recognizing the battle is just waking up to the fact that you're in a battle. But the battle doesn't consist of only those moments when people whose heads are spinning backwards, you know? No, the battle consists in how you talk and how you live and the motives of your heart and the words of your mouth. That is where the battle is fought. We are people who are invited to live in utter and constant revolt to the powers and principalities. The reason we're, the reason we love simplicity and generosity is because we are waging war against the powers of greed and money and consumerism in our world. Right? The reason we want to be people who accept and include everybody regardless of where they are is we're waging war against the powers that label and classify and divide. This is what we're invited into. And this, brothers and sisters, this is spiritual warfare. And for me, it puts a deeply important perspective on dumb little everyday things I don't think matter. Well, that's not going to hurt anybody. One writer had this beautiful image that every no to God gets incarnated into society because we're attached to each other in a thousand ways. That every no to God gets incarnated into society and joined with other no's until you have a big block of resistance. The scriptures call this powers and principalities. They're real. They hold people captive and we can feed them or we can plunder them. And all of that is done when you proclaim and embody the good news of Jesus. For me, this is deeply, deeply convicting. How I treat my wife when I'm angry is a matter of spiritual warfare. Getting that last word in or staying silent is an issue of spiritual warfare. Resolving conflicts with brothers and sisters is an issue of spiritual warfare. For me, I just don't look at my life like this. I really do think it's kind of like a cruise ship. You know, we're just, we want to have some fun. We want to survive. We want some great time with our family and our kids to turn out okay. But if you actually believe there's something more deep and real going on, this is where you find yourself. The Iraqi war in 2003 was very interesting, regardless of how you feel about it. We started the land war on March 20th, I believe, of 2003. Baghdad fell on April 9th. But there was a lot of fighting. Baghdad was the capital. And there was still a lot of fighting because the leader of that regime, Saddam Hussein, was still free. He'd been defeated. His army was in tatters. And he could only fight through the shadows of those still loyal to him. But it wasn't until December 13th of that year that Saddam was captured. He was defeated, yet still fighting. That is precisely the place we find ourselves in post-Easter. The enemy's defeated, but still fighting. There will come a moment, Jesus talks about, when sin and death, this enemy and kingdom of darkness, will be dispensed with once and for all. But not yet. 
And so you and I find ourselves in that not yet time, which is the hardest time of all. So close your eyes, if you would, for just a moment. For me, here's the question that gets asked. Lord, where am I feeding darkness? Where have I let darkness take up residence? And perhaps, where do I need to wake up to the reality of what the war is like all around me? To say that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, I find flesh and blood easier to take aim at. And so this morning, for me, this just calls to repentance. Where, in the way, where am I advancing the kingdom of darkness? And so, Father, we come before you on this day, and we ask that you would examine our hearts, and that you would bring not guilt, not shame, those are not of you, but you would bring conviction, that you would wake us up, Holy Spirit, and empower us, call us, invite us to live the lives that plunder the kingdom of darkness, to live lives that plunder out of captivity and into freedom, those that we love and those around us. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, mighty God, we pray that your will be done in Fullerton as it is in heaven. Amen.